you all very much for coming. I'm so, oh, look, oh, wow, sorry, one more new face. I'm so happy to see all of you, each and every one of you. So thank you so, so much for coming. Um, I'm going to talk a tiny bit about the series first before I start to read from it. Um, I had the opportunity to go on Bill Radke's show at KUOW today and talk about it a little bit. So if you get a chance to catch the podcast for the record for today, it's a really interesting stream of events that all make sense. He's talking about the orcas. And in Wilders, we talk about the orcas. He's talking about wildfire. And in wildfire and keeper, or in wilders and keepers, in both of these, I talk about the effects of climate change-driven wildfire as part of the history of the world. Um, and then I got to talk about, about this um, set of books. And to me, I wrote this set of books instead of my usual more space opera ebooks because I wanted to really talk about these topics. I wanted, instead of having it be kind of obtuse that I was talking about environmentalism and robotics and technology and being human in a really difficult time, I wanted to be kind of in people's faces. And I think that that's what this series has done. Um, and um, I'm really proud of the work. I don't know if these are the best novels from a story perspective or not. You never can tell. But I really felt that the material and the research and things that I did on these was, was really important to me and potentially important to the planet. And I was really, really grateful to get to do this work. Um, these books are set, Duane alluded it to it a little bit, but they're set in a world that is basically split between large megacities and we already have trends of people moving into cities. Um, and these cities are very smart, they're very connected, they're very um, vibrant, they're largely well off, we've got power problems solved, we have a basic income, so while they are still poor, they are not destitute in the way that we have it now. There's not homelessness in the way that we have it now. We still have the 1% living in the top and being fairly rich and well off and causing problems. So it's not a perfect society, but we've solved some of the problems that we're having today as far as how we're living in a city. And in order to solve some of the problems with biodiversity loss and um, the damage that's happened from wildfires in the past, we basically scraped the humans off the land in between the large cities legally and said, look, you can't own land in these places, we're going to make it wild. And so these stories are about two sisters, one of whom inhabits the city and one of whom inhabits the wild space. So I'm going to start with the prologue to Keepers, which basically tells you about this future Seattle and what the... Um, what the setup is, and then I will go into reading a little bit from the sister's actual story, and I'll leave some time for questions. It is 50 years from now. In the wild lands between the megacities, there are almost a third as many robots as there are people. Many of them are large and imposing, able to use tank-like treads or multiple feet to traverse almost any terrain, and multiple arms to compete, complete almost any job. These are the ecobots. They are bringers of death and cultivators of life. They destroy. They rip up rotten, weed-filled roads and collect the concrete detritus for recycling. They bring down wooden houses and separate out toxins and carry them away, burning the rest. They erase all of the things that were once human from places that were towns, that were farms, that were communes. After they restore. To restore is to grade and to plant, to seed and to water and to tend. To restore is to protect from anything not natural, including humans. 
for humans are no longer natural to the wild lands. A few humans are still tolerated here. These are the wilders. They work for the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, which is a fancy way of saying nonprofits. Thus, they are legally allowed outside of the megacities. Sometimes they tell the robots what to do. Sometimes the robots tell the humans what to do. The wilders and the ecobots are on the same side. The uneasy partnership exists throughout the United States. It bears the most fruit in the Northwest and the Northeast, for those regions are less ravaged than the Midwest, the South, or the rest of North America. A drone flying from west to east across the Northwest would see much beauty. Imagine you are riding with that drone, that you feel it bob in the wind and you see through its cameras. On the westernmost coast, the Olympic Peninsula rises out of the sea. It is occupied entirely by people from the First Nations who have rewilded their own land with their own robots and their own hands. Mountains spike up from moss-laden forests, jagged dark scarps that kiss a bright blue sky. Ghosts of great glaciers hide in shaded ravines, their last life melting into streams and thin waterfalls. Crossing the peninsula, one flies over water before crossing the long domed city of Seacouver, which fills the inner coastline of the Puget Sound. It rises high and sharp and colorful from the troubled waters, its weather control fields sometimes faintly visible as a shimmer or a slight bending of light. Bridges link the taller buildings in its three great downtowns, Vancouver, Seattle, and Tacoma. In spite of its industry, its metal and glass, its new material modernity, the city is decorated with green. Emerald City, indeed. Hundred-story buildings fill entire blocks with indoor gardens, and almost all roofs are given to year-long farms. Red tomatoes and yellow and orange citrus and slender wavy tops of carrots compete with deep green kale, and lighter green and red heads of lettuce. Flowers, berries, and edibles line the roadways that people traveling using all sorts of machines, mostly powered by humans themselves, their companion robots, or the fire of the sun. Even inside the dome, maybe especially inside the dome, the air is so clear that it is truly invisible, the sort of air that humans used to buy from oxygen bars. For all its beauty and size, its spaceports, and its fabulous architecture, from way up here, Seacouver is a long rectangle teeming with movement. On the far side of the city, land rises into the Cascades. Cedar and fir forests drape the rocky shoulders of the mountains with green shawls. Here and there, the scars of fires remain visible as slashes of desolation or pale new plantings. Topping a drone over the Cascades makes the engine strain. They're big. The air grows thin and wind becomes a threat. From way up here, it's easy to see how thoroughly the mountains control the weather. On the west side, where you've just been, everything is bright green and blue, dense with trees and birds and deer and coyotes, wet with streams and bisected by rivers. As you fly east, the rivers are larger and far fewer. The land between rivers is much folded hill and low scrub as forest. Far more of it scarred by fire. Almost immediately, you spot the small town of Cleon with perhaps 50,000 humans or maybe a few more. Far to the south, on the north bank of the wide Columbia, orchards and fields of grain surround Yakima and Selah. And then, there is nothing for a long time. At least nothing human except a few roads left for convenience and a few silent trucks traversing those roads and the ribbons of Hyperloop that carry people quickly between the cities. 
If you fly lower, you see a few Roman, a few humans, a few robots, and a few others who were not supposed to be there. You were now over promise, or what was once new promise, an upstart state that still exists as a legal entity, although there are no border markings for it on the ground. It has no legislature and no police force, and not much of anything else. Spokane, the largest city in Promise, can be seen minding the border between Promise and Idaho. Before that, the Columbia, which starts north of the drone, runs a lazy course through the land. A few miles west of the river, a 53-mile-long lake starts inside the lower part of the East Cascades, hugged by ravines and lined with trees. It looks like a great blue worm. Even though you can see there are only a few humans, compared at least to the billions in the cities, you don't have enough sensors to count them. If you cannot count them, then you cannot know that there are almost twice as many as there should be. The ones who should be there are the people of the Wilders. Together, the Wilders and the Ecobots are on the side of the spruce and the cedar, the prairie grass, and the wild rhododendron. They support the coyote and the rabbit, the black bear, and the wolf. The other people? Yeah, some are merely lost. Some are wandering artists who have lost themselves in the wild on purpose. They're illegal, but tolerated. Others are full of hatred for this new world. If they could be found, they would not be tolerated. These are the returners. There are a lot of places for them to hide in land this empty. So that's the setup. I think, I think I'm gonna try it without that. It's a little poppy, so I'm gonna try doing it without it. And thanks to the few of you who've also come in and joined. Um, and then I'm going to move on, and um, I'm going to read a little bit about the wild part of it. In some ways, this book surprised me because the wild part of it became a little bit of a new Western or a modern Western, um, and you know, it, it, it was actually kind of fun to write um, about that because I grew up on horseback and things. I just sort of didn't expect that in my science fiction book, and it, you know, writing does that to you sometimes. It surprises you. So this is from about a third of the way through. And to give you a little bit of background, um, the sister who lives in the wild is named Lou. And she travels with um, a couple of companions. One of them is Shushka, and one of them um, is Machiko. So the three of them sort of travel as a group together, at least in this part of it. And then there are a couple of other people who move back and forth between and I won't go through and introduce all the people. There are a few characters, so bear with the extra characters, but I think it'll be um, an interesting piece. So Lou sat easily on Mouse, Blessing riding on one side of her and Daryl on the other. They led the group, the robots behind them in a line, with Machiko on the first one and Day on the second, the two spare horses tied to that bot with a long line intended by Shuska. The road was marred by potholes so deep that the horses had to weave to avoid them, and the sides of the road cracked and crumbled away so that it was no more than a lane wide in a few places. It felt more dangerous than the rocky trail they'd just come down. Above them, the sky was blue and clear, the edges of the mountains and hills sharp against the sky, and almost as sharp as their reflections on the lake. It was the kind of morning when even though Lou was surrounded by the damage that made the world break, it felt as if they might be able to fix it. She could barely wait to set up house, to have a base to work from and daily rosters of work to do. She hadn't let herself look forward to that until now, but the logistics of creating a new headquarters were starting to run in the background of her brain. 
She'd never created a home before, and when she was a child, she'd never had one. Rivers End Ranch had felt like home, like they were all working together. That was where she first met Machiko and Shushka and Daryl, and where they had all been happy. She yearned to create something close to that. They rode past what had once been estates with vineyards and wine-tasting rooms. These had surely once been well-tended well parts of sophisticated gardens. Years before the great taking, even the rich had stopped trying for grass lawns. They passed a car rusted into the earth, partly obscured by tall ornamental grasses and butterfly weed in full yellow bloom. Her stomach twisted in a brief flash of anger, so much toxic junk left behind. Greed had made the world a place that needed wilders instead of a wild place. Blessing must feel the same, since she said such wasted opulence just loud enough for Lou to hear. That's an unusually big word. His only response was to look serious. There's someone close by, Daryl said, for no reason that she could see. Blessing stood a little in his stirrups, alert. Lou shook her right wrist to open it up in case she needed her weapon. She glanced up at Machiko, who rode above them and behind them, seated in a lotus position on top and near the front of the ecobot. She had dressed in blue this morning, just slightly brighter than the sky, and she reminded Lou of a picture she'd seen of a woman riding an elephant. Lou gave a fist shake to indicate possible danger and waited for Machiko's nod before she turned around again, just in time to see Daryl raise his rifle. A woman strode out onto the road in front of them, stopping with her legs a little apart and her hands at her side. Confident. She wore old jeans and a flowing top that had once been white and which was still white enough to contrast with her dark hair and flint-colored eyes. Latina. A beautiful Latina. Tall. Her hair had been braided away from her face but fell down her black back freely, blowing behind her in a soft, warm wind. Daryl watched the place she had come from. Blessing glanced towards the other side of the road, a strip of long bank leading to the lake, the river ten feet below the footings of a dock that had almost crumbled to dust. He pulled his gray back a little. That left her to ride mouse toward the woman, stopping about ten feet away. Hello, I'm Lou. She answered in a raspy and deep voice that carried well, a performer's voice that had been overused. I might be able to save you, perhaps. Lou blinked at her from yourself and your foolish courage. You are coming into a dangerous town, and since you came over the hills, I suspect you know that. Will you accept advice, woman to woman? Lou considered this while assessing the stranger. She had the muscle and wiry strength to hold her own in a fight. She appeared to carry nothing on her, no purse, no weapons, not even a coat with pockets. As far as Lou could tell, she was alone. What desperation or courage had caused her to step into the street in front of them? They could kill her easily. The woman waited patiently. The silence had gone on long enough. Lou asked, do you want to talk now? No, after I save you. Daryl narrowed his eyes at her. Save us from what? Blessing asked a different question. You found us. Were you looking for us? Did you know we were here? The woman smiled and chose to answer blessing. You were the talk of the town last night. There were bets about whether or not you would try the new wall. Many thought you would give up, but I did not think so. It takes power to command two ecobots and capability to keep and care for horses. 
She looked grave. There is little time. I want to get you through town before there are more people arrayed against you. <clears throat> Lou had developed a good ear for eyes. Lies. Whoever this woman was, she believed her own story. Perhaps she could help them find the place that Corin had chosen for them, and maybe even help them tell if it was a good choice. Do you want to come with us? The woman nodded. Do you have a name? I'm Valeria. Lou held out a hand. Lou. Lou Williams, the protector of wolves and the scourge of returners. It shook her a little that someone out here knew of her. People have called me that. After the foolish men came back to speed, at, came back to speed up building their foolish little wall, they talked of who they met. I thought it was you. You rumored to travel with an Indian and a China woman. Lou winced at her word choices. I travel with friends. Valeria's smile lit her old face. I'm happy to hear that. Lou glanced from Daryl to Blessing, giving them light nods to communicate her intent. When Blessing smiled and Daryl said his usual nothing but offered no contradiction, she turned back to Valeria and pointed the ecobot behind her. Would you like to ride? I would. She didn't approach the bot, though, but came up beside Mouse and extended a hand. Up close, Lou noted that she was older than she looked, with nests of thin wrinkles around her eyes and lips. Not Juliana's age, maybe 60 or so. But like Juliana, she moved like someone younger. She looked utterly confident, not pleading for a ride, not demanding one. The hand she extended bore the scars and calluses of someone who worked on a farm. Lou hesitated. She'd be vulnerable with Valeria behind her. What if she had a knife? I won't hurt you, Valeria said. Lou pulled her foot free of the stirrup and extended her hand, and Valeria nearly flowed up, settling behind the saddle. She sat calmly on Mouse's broad back as if she were quite familiar with horses. As they started off, she moved easily against Lou, rocking appropriately with Mouse's gait. So um, Valeria, who you just met, turns out to be one of the more interesting characters in the whole. Every once in a while, you know, a character <coughs> comes in and kind of takes over the book. And in both, in Wilders, it was an older woman named Juliana. And in Keepers, it's an older woman named Valeria. So it was just kind of interesting to me how like these spirits of older women came into these books and became really important to these younger women. You know, when you're writing, some of what you're doing is conscious and some of what you're doing is in your outline and some of what you're doing is things you planned, but some of what you're doing just sort of creeps into the story. And so both of these characters became um, a little bit more important to the story than I had thought that they would um, for each book. So that's, that's your chance to meet um, Valeria and hear a little bit about what it's like to be in the wild. Um, so this is, we're going to go back to the city. And um, this is the, the younger sister, Corin, And Corin is still trying to prove herself. She did prove herself in some ways in the first book, um, quite successfully. But now she's back in the city and she has to prove herself in the city. And if you think about Seattle now, in Seacouver, there's hundreds of thousands of more people, and it's far denser, and it's far taller, and it's, you know, there's a lot going on. And so she's got to figure out what is her place. And Juliana, who I mentioned from this book is the older woman, has helped her and has given her, you know, a chance to perhaps create something for herself and given her a job, but corin has got to actually do the work. Um, but this is one of the moments when she meets someone, and it's, in fact, her first romantic um, person. So Corin stared over the seawall railing at the dark shifting sound. The great wheel's reflection glittered with fall colors. The baskets were lined in orange and the circle shone a deep red orange that reminded her of Imke's lips. 
Blessing had been beside her the last time she was here, and they'd kissed at the top of the wheel. But Blessing hadn't kissed her properly since, and he wasn't here. He'd asked her for nothing. She had no idea if this qualified as a date, or if she wanted it to, but it was certainly the first time she had met someone outside of Juliana's circle for a meal. Nerves goaded her into walking while a desire to look calm kept her pace slow. The waterfront seemed overcrowded, filled with people showing off new coats and boots, people who weren't Amke. She stopped by the railing where she'd asked Namina to wait for her and asked her if she'd seen Amke. The robot shook her head and Corin went back to walking. She spotted Amke before they saw her. They looked older offstage. Their black pants and pale blue t-shirts seemed printed to an exact fit. Their face was an ama amazing palette of blues and browns. Even their hair was blue tonight, pulled up in a braid with long strands of jeweled string or chain glittering along their neck and shoulders and swinging with every stride. Their lips were the same enchanting russet, and immediately, Corin wanted a kiss. She felt plain by comparison in spite of the hours she'd spent poring over designs for her outfit. She'd ordered black pants with geometric cutouts that loosely mimic stars and planets and a flowing sage green shirt that highlighted her green eyes and contrasted with her red hair. She had felt fabulous, and now she felt understated. I'm Kay seemed to appreciate Corn's look just fine. Corn's chest felt light as I'm Kay's smile spread all the way across their face, lifting their cheekbones and looking so genuine and unforced it made Corin smile. She sped up as she went to meet them. They led her back to the railing, leaning out and looking over the wide seawall. I like the wild places, I'm Kay said. We have water like this, huge lakes that are security holes in our wall, but beautiful. They are the only places we really have with horizons. Where? Oh, I'm Kay smiled. I feel like I know you so well, but I don't, I suppose. Their worlds drawled off as they stared out across the water. I'm from Chicago, assigned to our embassy here. Up close, Corin could see that the jewels hung on small nano ribbons so thin she could barely see them. Metallic. Tiny knots held the jewels and faceted beads apart from each other, the whole long assemblages light enough to blow in the wind and tinkle against each other. There were maybe 20 or 25 strands curling down from IMK's hair and lying all <clears throat> along the left side of their neck. Fascinated, Corin stayed quiet, her gaze skipping between the water and Imke. What a stunningly beautiful human. Imke pointed. Is that a fish? Corin squinted. The city's lights only illuminated a few hundred feet of water, maybe, maybe inches deep. The surface shifted and moved around, and rings of water moved through it. Then a gray form rose and fell, slick and thinned. Corin watched while it breached and breathed noting its slightly flattened face. It's a harbor porpoise. Is that a dolphin? Corin smiled. Close enough. Do you know a lot about dolphins? The porpoise disappeared, and Corin watched the places it seemed likely to surface. I'm fascinated with cetaceans, particularly orcas, but really everything that lives out here. I'm impressed. Heat flushed Corin's cheeks. I was glad you wanted to meet down here. Do you want to go on the Ferris wheel? No. I'm Kay smiled, good. I've been on that three times already. What's your favorite place in the city? The top of the Bridge of Stars. Really? A bridge? Oh, I love the view. I'll show it to you. But not tonight. It's work to get there, and we're not dressed for all that. Can we take a car? No. Corn gave up watching for the porpoise. That's why I like it. You have to work for it. Walk up, run up, or bike up. So where else can we go? 
all Corin could really think of was bridges and running places and parks and places Juliana owned. None of them seemed right. So she countered, where would you like to go? Were you born here? I'm really boring, Corin countered. Mostly I was poor. I can show you the places poor people go, but once more we're not dressed right. I'm Kay raised a bright blue eyebrow. Are you really boring? I don't think Juliana suffers the boring. Corin swallowed. Maybe she was boring. Maybe that was why she'd been cast out of the higher levels and out of her room. But this wasn't the moment for that either. She had already decided this was important and that whether or not I'm Kay liked her mattered. Just being near them made Corin's palms sweaty and her words tickle in her throat. You said you liked my dancing. Do you know a good place to dance? I'm Kay stood up. They and Corin were almost equal in height, or would be if I'm Kay weren't wearing platforms that made them a few inches taller. I know just the place. I'm not 21. I saw your red bracelet in the bar. Where I'm taking you, age doesn't matter. Oh. I'm Kay glanced at Namina. Can you ditch your companion? Can you, rather than will you? I'm Kay didn't appear to have a robot keeper, but they were giving Corin room. I can't. A sigh slid through IMK's lips. I didn't think so. Well, she'll have to stay outside. There will be a few more like her. Corin shrugged. A few minutes later, IMK led Corin into a large round hotel building and took an escalator to the top. After traversing a long hallway and taking a tiny set of stairs to the roof, they stepped onto a big square patio. The lighting was all ambient, light from other buildings, light from the stars. A cool wind plucked at IMK's jewels. Three or four other companions sat at tables, all of them young models with chiseled features and spare clothes. Corin nodded, and Namina went over to an empty table and sat, staring out over the city. She was beautiful, maybe as beautiful as the others left out here, but she also looked a little plainer in ways Corin couldn't quite figure out, until Imke leaned down and whispered in her ear, See that girl bot over there? Yes, she's almost half a million dollars. Oh. Why? She's precise, clearly a sex bot and a companion, but see how fine her features are? Don't get too near, I'm sure you wouldn't be allowed to touch her, but doesn't she almost glow? The robot turned towards them, her eyes picking up just enough light for the soft green-blue of them to show. They looked deep and wise and a little thoughtful, dripping with empathy. Corin leaned into Imke, she looks more than human. She does. IMK brushed their lips across Corin's cheek, a touch so hot it almost burned. They tugged on Corin's arms. Let's go. IMK opened the wide door at the far end of the patio while all of the companions watched them. Just inside, a male robotic guard stopped them for a moment. He stared at IMK and then at Corin and then nodded sagely. They passed through yet another door, the setup reminding her of the security vestibule for Juliana's private offices. On the far side, a patio swept across the top of the building, the crowded dance floor pulsing with pastel colors. Mist rose from the edges, swirling across the dancers' feet, up as high as their knees in a few places. A beautiful wrought metal and wood fence with glass panes and fantastic dragons and birds enclosed the patio, which was lined with tables for two and potted trees covered with pale yellow lights. Robotic gargoyles bigger than humans occupied the corners, turned in towards the dance floor. The lead singer of the band played on a raised pedestal. He nodded familiarly at I'm Kay. I'm Kay pulled Corin into the crowd. Her feet moved awkwardly for the first song, and then I'm Kay moved into her, putting a hand on the small of her back, and Corin let out a long breath and started dancing. I'm Kay directed her and then let themselves be directed, moving easily to, cue to cues. 
Dancers began to give them room, and a few patrons clapped after Imke swirled Corin under their arm, picked her up, and twirled her away. Five songs later, sweat covered Corin's skin and soaked her shirt. Imke called a brief halt and led Corin over to a single open table that appeared, as if just for them. A pair of stylized eagles decorated the fence nearby. Imke nodded at the outsized birds. I'll let them keep you company for a moment. I'll be right back. Corin had barely recovered her breath when Imke showed up with two glasses of water and two glasses of a pale substance that didn't look quite like wine. What is that? Dessert wine. It's sweet, but you can use the sugar after all that dancing. Corin reached for it and took a sip. Sugar's not on my training diet. She took another sip, letting the wine rest on her tongue and trickle down her throat. But this is good. Training? I'm a runner. Imke raised their eyebrows. That explains your finely tuned energy. Corin didn't know how to react to that, so she didn't. If you've ever only been here a month, how did you know this place existed? I've never heard of it. She didn't bother how I'm came managed to get wine for her. This place stank of the privilege of the super rich. Not the quiet rich, like Juliana, the show-offs. The chair she sat on probably cost a month's rent for her apartment. I'm Kay sipped their wine, their jewels clinking against each other as they moved. I work for the mayor of Chicago, and he sent me here a few years ago. I split time between the two cities now. So you're more than a singer? Aren't you more than a dancer? Well, sure, I'm a runner, and I work for a foundation. You're not a wilder. My sister is, so what are you? Why did everyone want to know that? Corin finished her wine in a long swallow. That's a good question. I'm Kay Cocker Head at Corin. You have a job a lot of people would love. Working for Juliana and Jake? Yes, she blushed. It still amazed her as well. I mostly support my sister. I'm helping her get things done. She's in Chelan. What is she working on? Wolves. Is she safe there? <laughs> Corin shrugged. Is anyone safe anywhere? No, I'm Kay grinned. But every time I feel safe, I also feel bored. They leaned in here, leaned in a little. I'm here to spy. My boss thinks the recent attacks were designed to test Seacouver, to figure out the strength of your defenses, and that there's worse to come. We have walls in Chicago, but they can be breached. So we're worried for ourselves, too. So. That's that piece of it. So that's a little bit of the city and a little bit of, of what Corin is up to. So I want to stop and take questions. Yes, John. Talk a little bit about the radio show thing today. How was that? What was it like? It was fun. Um, I had a chance to be on KUOW like maybe three weeks ago. Uh, a friend of mine who runs this lovely startup called Scout.ai that deals with science fiction and technology and putting them together invited me and Ramez Nam, a lot of you know Mez, um, to go down and talk about that work. Um, and then I got a chance to talk to Bill Radke on my own today about the books, and that was just really fun. And I, it, I think one thing came out of the other, and you know, you never know when fun opportunities come up, but it was, you know, it was kind of fun. You know, and I got back to work and a couple people said, oh, wow, I heard you on the radio. So, you know, that was kind of fun. <laughs> now, but just to make things really fun, I managed to have the book come out and the reading happen the same day our ERP system went live at work. So, <laughs> so I've been going back and forth. I've spent the day binging back and forth between Seattle and, and work and trying to wear all the hats because that's what I do is I wear all the hats. What's the ERP system? That's your, the whole financial system for the city. It's kind of a big thing. It's a multi-million dollar project that's taken us about a year. Luckily, I have a really great project manager, 
And so it, I didn't really have, I, my job was more cheering than doing, so I really just had to be there at various times to cheer, so that was all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, uh, this is the second book in, in, are you going to have another book after this? Well, this set is a complete story. I sure hope I have another book after this. <laughs> and, um, I often go back and do, I often do more than one duology in a world. I'm kind of itching to maybe write Juliana's story. But first I'm doing a couple, Tony's nodding her head and saying, please do that. <laughs> a, co a couple of people have asked me about that. So I might do that. Um, but I'm in the middle of finishing up I'm currently re-releasing the Silver Ship and the Sea series, which was my first series. And that series, I never got to finish the fourth book because the 2008 recession happened the day the second book come out, came out, which was a good way to sort of destroy a beginning writer's first series. <laughs> not not Tor's fault, not my fault, you know, just the universe. So Wordfire Press um, has graciously agreed to re-put out the first three and even let me edit them f so that I could take out really horrible sentences. And, because um, there were some really horrible, I mean, you know, 10 years along, you've learned a few things. And so, I, you know, I cut maybe a tenth out of each book and, and got rid of a lot of really bad things. But I didn't change the stories because the stories held up really well. So I'm getting to write that fourth book. So I'm going to put that out next so that that's complete. Because every once in a while I get fans that will email me and say, hey, how come the series kind of petered out? Well, <laughs> you know, and it's only got the one book to finish it. And I'm, so that's my next project. And then after that, I might go back to this. I've also kind of got it in my head that I, I want to write the On the Beach of Climate Change which might destroy me to write, but I kind of want to write it, so we'll see if I decide I'm ready to do that yet or not. Um, I think it'll take a lot of talent. Huh? <laughs> not in be the on the beach of climate change, but it will be cheerier than, say, the road, okay? <laughs> which is maybe not hard. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I'll really do, but I've, I've been, since I, I went back, so many of you know I went back and got my MFA, and I've been reading more of the literary, literary work that is also um, science fiction work. For example, I just finished Overstory by Richard Powers, which was just fabulous. It has a very light speculative fiction element, but it's surely the kind of thing that will be up for the, the Man Booker Prize and not the Hugo. But, um, <laughs> but he read the same books that I read to go into this. Clearly his research was the same and this manifested that way. And it was just brilliantly done. And so, I, and so I'm really working on, on trying to find a way to reach even more people by writing a book that will still be interesting to all of the people in the community, because I, I love this community, but that will also maybe reach past it. So that's, maybe I'm being overly ambitious, but that's what I'm hoping to do. Okay, so the, the question is basically how do I write and do I outline and what do I know? I, I am not a deep outliner. I mean, I know people who actually outline, and they outline in such a detailed way that they can write anywhere in the book. I can't do that. Um, 
because I get bored. I don't want to know the whole story. I want to tell myself the story as I'm writing it. But I know the main characters. I know the beginning. I know the middle. I know the end, because I try to put in the middle of every book some turn or twist or something that's going to be different. So I kind of have an arc. I have something I could write out in like, you know, maybe two pages that will tell you about the book. But then that comes out maybe 25 or 30% different than that as I write it, too, which is kind of fun. Um, but you know, there's there's no one right way to write. To you know, some of my favorite writers are deep outliners. You can ask more. Okay. <laughs> um, if we were going to end up in the world that you described, how would you recommend we behave now, or what should we learn so that we can survive in that environment? Okay. That's a really good question. If we were to end up in the world that I'm writing here, what do we need to do now to get there? And I'm going to say the world that I'm writing is neither all Pollyanna good nor all apocalyptic. It's sort of in between, and it's kind of, I don't even know if this world will survive climate change. They have gotten further than perhaps we might if we're not careful. Okay, but as you know, although I'm not writing about it much in here, there are space programs in these cities, and people are going, you know, what do we need to do as in order to to possibly get off if we need to, while the Wilders and other people are working on fixing things, and then there are other people who are trying to pretend nothing bad is happening, which is a lot like today. Um, <laughs> so it's just you know today run forward with things having progressed a little more along all those lines. So we're doing a better job at rewilding. We're doing a better job at getting to space. Although, as I said, that doesn't really play in these books, but it might play in some stories I write about this. So what do we need to do? To get to this world, we have to, to continue to build power in the cities. If you think about it, cities, particularly the large liberal cities, already have a lot of power. We've done some things in Seattle that other places are following. Um, we've done some things at the state level that other people are following. Right now, you know, there is a, a, an issue between President Trump and the state of California because he's frustrated because the state of California wants cleaner cars. What I actually read today is that they wanted to, that they were going to claim that if we had cars that got better gas mileage, people would drive more and thus put themselves more at risk, and that's why we should not have better gas mileage. Now, does that make any sense to anyone? Okay. You know, so I don't actually think the federal government is going to win. All right. I mean, I think that, that as things go forward, it's plausible, one plausible future out of many is that the federal government loses some of its teeth and that the states and the cities pick it up. In here, Seacouver includes Vancouver, and so it's crossing a, a country line, and yet the laws are the same throughout the whole city because the city has got that much power and, is, and, and has created that economic power. And if I ever write the story of Juliana, that's the story of how that happened. So if I write that, I'll be writing about how that happened. So there, you know, we have to get, we're, you know, even the climate change deniers are eventually going to have to notice that either their houses have burned down or their house or that they their coastlines have drowned. I mean, you know, these things are just getting to the point where the feedback loops are too big. You know, it's not going to be possible. This is like the last paroxysm of the people who want to die in a a sea of oil, you know. I mean, we're just we're going to get past that, you know. And and in this future, it's all solar. 
you know, there's probably some other power. I didn't really go into that. I'm sure there's still some hydropower and stuff. But basically, people don't have to worry about power. You know, we've got lots of robotics. We've got lots of computers. But it all runs because we've got solar. And solar is already on that path. You know, solar is already cheaper than oil. Many, many countries are already choosing to get off oil. We just can't seem to get off oil or guns. But I think we will. <laughs> And we probably have to do that to get to a future where 50 years from now we'll have vibrant cities. But I think we can get to, I mean, I'm kind of an optimist. So I think we can get there. Yeah. Uh, your answer, part of the, the first question that I had was the, which Vancouver was incorporated. Mm. So, the north, you know, northern one. The one north instead of the one south. But uh, I don't know if, if you, uh, how do you deal with the hydroelectric dams that are on the Columbia River? Or, or do they still exist? Actually, at one point, we drive past the, pl or we ride horses past the places where they were. Take them all off? I, I suspect you probably don't take them all off. Okay, and I don't know that I even mentioned that, but I did, we did take down some dams and we talked about some dams being gone. I didn't decide if we'd taken them all off, but I think we have to take most of them off. If we don't need them for hydropower because we have other ways of getting power, and we do need if we're going to restore salmon, and there's actually laws compelling us to restore salmon. Um, there's a whole, whole program called WIRA. I work for a city, so I've got, you know, bureaucratic geek in me. Um, you know, we're going to have to get rid of them. If we want the orca to live, you know the story about the orca, you know, driving around with its, or riding, riding around with its, you know, dead baby. You know, these orcas are not going to live if we don't get them more fish. They don't have enough salmon. That's all they eat. You know, other populations of orca eat other things, but I've studied these pods closely, and if we don't get more salmon to these pods, somehow these pods are going to die. There's a story like this. There's a pod of orcas in um, Alaska that got caught up in the um, Valdez spill, spill, they've had no children. So, they're, so it's basically as they die off, they'll just be gone. And we're very close to that because we're not having viable babies in our pods now. Yeah. But that's a downer. <laughs> so you talk about um, the orchards and agriculture around Yakima. Mm -hmm. um, if you take out the dams, what are you going to do about irrigation? Well, the, the rivers are still there. I don't know. <laughs> you know, for one thing, we have more weather control because they were able to control weather around Seattle, so I suspect there may be some things they can do with that. You know, the Columbia is still a pretty darn big river, even if you don't dam it. I mean, you're still going to have the same amount of water going through it. You're just not slowing it down and stopping it in order to do other things. And that's part of why I chose that area to leave. Part of why I chose that area to leave is actually because after this book, a number of people said, "Are you? can you really grow everything that you need in the cities? And I thought about it, and I thought, probably not. You can grow most of what you need in the cities because you can, you can grow a lot inside of buildings in a controlled manner. But you're probably not going to grow orchards inside the cities. That's probably not going to happen. So even if you plant edible parks, even if you plant edible greenways, which I do have um, in my future Seacouver, you're probably not going to get apples that way. And Washingtonians are probably still going to want apples. So I did leave that as one of the agricultural areas. I left Clay Ellum because it could be a reasonable agricultural area because there's the Tianaway River and things up there. Well, if I remember Yakima correctly, they've done more for uh 
Yakima and South has gone more for grapes than they have for apples. Well, everybody has recently. There's more money in wine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All along the Columbia River, if you drive up and down to the orchards, I grew up in Central Washington oh. and worked in orchards for seven years. I watched them and just check out every place. And when we just drove back through um, Eastern Washington yesterday, we noticed that there were a whole bunch of hillsides that now have more vineyards and orchards on it than ever did when I was growing up there. Right, so they're planting more. Yeah. I, I remember uh, between Antioch and the Terrace, uh, all kinds of orchards and such uh, yeah. from uh, when I was a kid. And, they finished the Wells Dam and uh, covered over a bunch of orchards, too. Too. I'll take yours. Uh, you mentioned um, the, on the beach of climate change. I was wondering, do you, do you view climate change as a potential human extinction event? Or <laughs> I think it's actually hard not to view climate change as a potential human extinction event. Maybe not human extinction, because maybe we'll figure out how to survive, because we're pretty clever. Maybe we'll get to space. Maybe we'll figure out how to build things that we can live in. Maybe the ultra-rich will have their boats and, and float around on, on, on water. But if you look at all, I've done a lot of research. And over the time I've been doing this research, which is about 10 years, almost all of the things that people have warned us about have happened actually sooner than they said that they would happen. And some of them are happening at higher amplitudes, if you will, than we thought that they would. So I'm a little afraid that we can get to where this becomes a runaway event. It won't happen in the time frame of on the beach, where you have six months before all of humanity is going to be wiped out. It will take a longer time frame than that, because there will be places you can live for a long time, unless we really poison the atmosphere. But there's. There's a lot of damage being done. There's a lot of damage being done to biodiversity. There's a lot of damage being done um, in storms and forests. And there's going to be more sea level rise than I think people yet realize. So it worries me. I think we can, do, we can make changes now that will still avoid the worst of those things. But I don't think anything we did now would avoid beginning to see worse and worse effects for at least the next decade or so and probably longer, which really frightens me. Um, and you know, it's almost enough to make me want to stop doing research because it is that frightening. But on the other hand, I don't want to because I'm really interested in the topic. You know. Is there a lot of research going on, um, probably not funded by the government, but on, on how to deal with these effects as if, they're, if they're inevitable? Yeah. Yeah, there's tons of people working on it all over the world, including here. You know, the federal government is maybe not funding these things right now, and, and maybe they're running around destroying data and doing a lot of other things we wish they weren't doing. But um, cities, states, um, NGOs, and frankly, a lot of businesses. You know, I, I do work a little bit with the entrepreneurial community, and a lot of the people I talk to who are doing startup businesses, they're actually very interested in you know, a lot of them are millennials, you know, and they, they, they want good lives for their entire lives, you know. I mean, I will probably be dead before climate change wipes out humanity, but they might not, or my grandchildren might not. And I think they're very aware of that, and they're actually doing a lot of interesting work for better transportation, better social ideas for how to do things, better ways to grow food. You know, we're working on how do we stop eating beef, which oddly enough is a bigger contributor to climate change than you would think. 
you know, some of these odd things you find when you're doing research. So I think it could be a human extinction event, and I, I'm, I'm an optimist, so I'm hoping it's not, and I tend to believe it's not going to have to be, but it could be. John. Well, one thing, I, I saw in the news today that the EPA has reversed Pruitt's decision on diesel fuel, so that's a positive. Mm -hmm. Just <laughs> well, and actually, a lot of the big businesses and even some of the Republicans are, get it, okay? And so, and I even think at some level, based on some of the things I've been reading, the Koch brothers even get it a little bit. Um, so I think there are a lot of people with money. There are many people with more money than governments and more power than governments as far as free money to spend on things now in this world where we've you know, concentrated wealth so much. And some of them are good guys. And so I think that's going to help a lot, too. I think the tech companies are going to be more good than bad, even though some days it feels like all the news out of the tech companies is bad. I think, in, I think these are people who will be working to save the world. Whether they succeed or not is maybe a different question. So I, I grew up in the 70s in my day. Everything I read was post-apocalypse some way or the other, right? Um, so how do you feel in all of your research is more critical for us climate change or overpopulation? Climate change. Oh, we can manage the earth if we lived differently on it could easily handle the number of people we have and more. I think overpopulation certainly contributes to climate change. I think it I think poverty contributes more to climate change. I think that um, bad social practices. I think that spreading out, um, you know, and, and you know, not allowing wild spaces to exist contribute. I think the way we travel contributes. So I think a lot of things contribute to, tr to climate change in much more seriously than overpopulation. But overpopulation is an issue. So I wouldn't want to say it's not important. It would certainly help. But frankly, we learned a long time ago that if you just educate women and girls and give them access to birth control, your overpopulation problems go away. So this is not rocket science. We just have to do it. It wasn't 80-year-old men making the decisions. Do we be in a better shape? Well, there's a lot of women running for office right now. So you know, if you want to do something, go out and help people who are running for office. You know, I've started doing more of that. I actually, you know, got signatures for 1631. I haven't never collected signatures in my life. I'm running out there, you know, at farmers markets collecting signatures. You know, not that I have time for it, but it's like we have to do it. I've flown to D.C. to march. I've done all these things I did not think I would do. You know, um, Tony signing people up to vote. You know, I mean, there's so many things we just we have to do something. We have to we have to take it back, and we can do it. You know, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm on a political soapbox, but you started me there, <laughs> you know, but I, I actually believe we can do it. Let me take one or two more questions. Dwayne's standing up there in the back, which means we're almost done. <laughs> it's a little change of subject, but I'm curious about your um, MFA experience and how that's affected your writing, if it has or hasn't. Well, okay, that's a long question. So about my MFA experience and whether it has or hasn't affected my writing and what I think of it. First of all, I loved it. I do not think I would have loved every MFA experience, okay? I went to Stone Coast, which is on, in Maine. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's a low residency program, so you fly back there for 10 days at a time, twice a year, and you hang out with writers all day. 
And those of you who know me know that I'm, most days I'm, you know, Miss Multi-Hat and I do four or five different things. And I really never get to just inhabit the favorite part of myself, which is the creative part. So I really have to do, I'm doing my day job, I'm managing family, I'm walking dogs, I'm doing exercise, I'm doing futurist work, I'm coming out to events like this. And it's just lovely to fall into nothing but writing for 10 days and talking about writing. The professors I got to work with were fabulous. Keepers is, in fact, dedicated to one of them, to Martina Spada, who is a uh, Puerto Rican poet who is phenomenal. I mean, he is uh, tall, probably almost Dwayne's height, tons of presence. When he talks, he fills the room, and his poetry is pissed off about the way Puerto Ricans are treated. And this was before Maria, okay? <laughs> I can only imagine now, but you would hear him talk, and you would suddenly go, oh my gosh, look at the power of poetry, which I had forgotten. My first writing was writing poetry, and I'd forgotten how powerful poetry can be. And, um, and I think part of why I went back, too, is my reviews have tended to be Hey, we really love the story, we like the characters, the world building is absolutely excellent, but some of the writing, eh, you know, it could be better. So, and I'd never really studied English, so I thought, well, all right, you know, if I want to get to the next level as a writer, I mean, I, I have a lot of books out, I have a following, I have friends who will come to my readings, um, but, you know, if I want to get to another level, I think I thought I had to go back and learn some more stuff. So to me, it was really cool to just go back and learn English, because I studied business and technology when I was in college, and futurism, and, and so it was really fun to go study sentence structure. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but I actually really liked it, and I think it was worth the time and the money and the effort to do it. And you'll have to tell me later whether it helped my writing, because, you know, <laughs> writers can never tell. <laughs> okay, one more question? No, yeah. Um. Obviously, I haven't read either of the uh, two books mm -hmm. yet, and I intend to do so very shortly. But uh, you were you were talking about uh, salmon being so important to uh, the orca population and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, have, did you mention anything about the uh, floating plastic island that's out in the middle of the Pacific and you know that type of uh, pollution that's affecting our, uh, all the uh, fishing industries. I did not in this book. I have mentioned it in stories. Um, Kat Rambo did a great story about that. Um, I don't remember the name of it. Do any of you remember the name of her? It was in Near Plus Far. I yeah, it was, it was in Near Plus Far. Kat Rambo's a local writer. She did a great story about that. Um, but that is also part of the issue. Though. The issue around the orcas is multifaceted. It is the sound of the boats. It is the lack of salmon. It is the pollution. And it is the runoff from the things we put on our lawns. I mean, it's, there are many, many things that need to be done if we're going to save the orcas. And just, just feeding them will not be enough. But food is kind of a basic mass of those hierarchy things. So that would help. <laughs> Thank you. Don't get any arguments from me on that, on uh, those issues. I, I, you know, I'm in a, one of those rarities for this area. I'm a native. <laughs> good. Uh, oh, I do do mention that Native Americans do a good job of doing their rewilding, <laughs> and we gave and I gave them back Celilo Falls. <laughs> Thank you very, very, very much for coming.